Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode was recorded live in front of a virtual audience and produced in partnership with CGIAR, the world's largest agricultural innovation network. It is part of a series of episodes that examine the relationship between climate and security. I moderate a panel discussion in which experts discuss and explain the need for a coherent approach to climate security across multiple policy sectors. Introductory remarks are given by Robert Voss, Director of Markets, Trade, and Institutions Division at CGIAR, who frames the conversation before I moderate the panel. To view other episodes in this series and participate in a future live taping of this podcast, please visit climatesecurity.cgiar.org. Now here is Robert Voss of CGIAR. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. My name is Rob Voss. I'm the Director of Markets, Trade and Institutions of IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute that's part of CGIAR. And I will be your webinar host today and introduce our topic for discussion. The world is not on track to eliminate hunger and malnutrition. Global hunger was already on the rise before COVID-19. The number of people facing acute food insecurity has risen over the past seven years. Last year, the number rose starkly, affecting more than 150 million people. And also during this year, 2021, many more people facing famine-like conditions have been counted in the semi-annual update of the Global Report on Food Crisis that will be released in the coming days. If you thought famines were something of the past, you missed the memo. They're back, center front. It shouldn't be the case, as the world has seen enormous progress in agricultural productivity growth over the past half century. The world produces more than enough food to, to feed everyone, and yet not everyone has enough to eat. Things clearly are not moving in the right direction. Climate change is a major spoiler and a major threat to food security. It is not just a future threat, it's already affecting food production today. A recent World Bank study estimates that the impacts of climate change have already reduced agricultural productivity growth by one-fifth over the past decades. Climate change has fell through prolonged droughts, torrential rains, and other weather extremes, is also one of the three key drivers of the rise in global hunger in recent years. Food systems at large generate one-third of global greenhouse gas emissions. Food systems are just both a victim and a driver of climate change. It means that we need to address the problems of climate change and global hunger together. If not, they will not be resolved at all. Conflict and civil strife are a key second driver of today's food crises. Many of today's conflicts are fought in rural areas and have direct impacts on agriculture and the livelihoods of the poor. Conversely, Food insecurity and dispossession of assets like land and cattle often are triggers that start or prolong violent conflict. Weather shocks, such as prolonged droughts, can also be found, has also, have also been found to increase the risk of conflict. 
This means that we need to address the problems of conflict, climate change, and food insecurity together. If not, we will solve neither. The third driver of today's food crisis are economic shocks that undermine livelihoods of the poor. As COVID-19 has shown, the poor are least resilient and tend to be hit hardest during economic downturns and instability, especially if accompanied by sharply rising food prices. Weather shocks and conflict are often a main cause of economic collapses in fragile uh, contexts. This means that in such contexts, we can only address economic crisis and improve household resilience when also addressing conflict, climate change, and food insecurity. If not, we will still solve neither. So the main point I'm trying to make should be clear by now. We need a proper understanding of how these global challenges interact with each other. If not, the solution for one may prove ineffective because of failure to address associated problems. This is why, for instance, the international community providing food and humanitarian assistance to save lives of people in emergencies is seeking to align humanitarian support with actions promoting longer-term economic development and mitigating conflict. This humanitarian development peace nexus is one example of seeking coherent solutions to address multidimensional challenges. Such policy coherence should also count for climate action. And climate action should seek policy coherence with the humanitarian development peace nexus. Now, we all agree that policy coherence is a good idea. After all, who wants to be seen as incoherent? The questions we should ask ourselves are rather, what does policy coherence mean in practice? What action is needed to catalyze change across policy domains? To provide answers, CTIR's focus climate security is developing and testing a policy coherence evaluation framework for the climate security development nexus. At this seminar, we want to explore further about the what and how of policy coherence along this nexus and what should be the role for the research community. The stakes are high. I look forward to our discussion today. Uh, Welcome, everyone. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I am the editor of UN Dispatch and host of the Global Dispatches podcast. And today's conversation is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast. Rob Voss did a great job of framing this conversation. And now I have the honor of moderating an excellent panel today, whom I will now introduce. Richard Klein is Senior Research Fellow and Team Lead for International Climate Risk and Adaptation at the Stockholm Environment Institute. Welcome. Frank Place is Director, CGIAR Research Program on Policies, Institutions, and Markets. Welcome. Tobias von Losso is a Research Fellow in the Sustainability Research Unit at Klingendahl. Welcome. And Sibi Lawson-Marriott is Regional Advisor, Climate Change Adaptation, Resilience, and Gender Equality with the World Food Program. Welcome to all. Uh, So I will have some questions prepared for our esteemed panelists, but I will also be sure to leave time for questions from the audience. To ask a question, please simply leave your question in the comment field wherever you are watching the live stream. So to kick things off today, I'm going to start with two rounds of very quick questions to each of you. Please try to keep your answers to under one minute. And uh, Richard Klein, I'll start with you. 
Uh, first question, why do policy responses to climate change need to be integrated and coherent across various policy sectors? Thanks, Marlion, and thanks, Rob, for uh, inviting me to the seminar. Um, I'm looking at this from an, an adaptation perspective. Uh, the impacts of climate change will affect many different sectors in all parts of the world. Uh, take a coastal region with beaches and coastal wetlands that's going to be affected by a rise in sea level. Um, there'll be a need to protect the people who live there, uh, but there's also a need perhaps to maintain tourism, to ensure continued fisheries, um, and, and nature conservation is important as well. And, and the policies and measures that can be taken to uh, to, take, to tackle sea level rise, uh, protect the region and maintain economic uh, productivity uh, are, are very different. And it's important that those options are chosen that do not close off options for others. In other words, that conflicts are not, uh, do not arise as a result of adaptation to climate change. That's why we need policy coherence. Uh, thank you. Uh, same question to you, Frank Place. Uh, why do we need policy coherence? Good. Uh, I'll compliment uh, Richard's very broad view and take a more narrow uh, focus. If we just look at the aspect of res one one aspect of response to climate change, that is to increase the use of climate smart practices on farms. A whole set of actions need to take place, from building of capacity of advisory services and farmers to reducing incentives that encourage farmers to use other practices, to developing basic infrastructure such as irrigation. If we now consider the entire food system, there are even more areas requiring into integration and coherence. And finally, I would like to mention that vertical integration is as important as sectoral coherence, as there are often actions required at different administration levels uh, for strategies to be effectively implemented. Thanks. Uh, thank you. And, and Tobias von Lasso, why policy coherence? Well, yeah. Also, thanks for the invitation and thanks for the question. Um, well, I think it's... Uh, I want to look at it even a bit broader. I think that policy responses in general should be integrated and coherent. Uh, that does not only apply for climate change and climate security, but also for COVID-19 and disaster risk reduction or the global energy transition. And as the challenges that we look at uh, today are quite broad and quite complex, they basically need, it's a need that they are integrated and coherent to avoid unintended consequences and also to reduce competing um, goals uh, or agendas. For instance, when it comes to land use practices or also decisions uh, to be taken over infrastructures. Uh, thank you. And Sibi Lawson Marriott, why policy coherence help help finish out this lightning round for us? Thanks, Mark. And let us also thank you for allowing us to be part of this uh, discussion. Regionally speaking, in Eastern and Southern Africa, we have one of the highest rates of, of displacement and migration and all the uh, associated fragility that, that comes with that. Uh, this includes both involuntary but also voluntary movements, often in search of pasture, access to, to water or other natural resources, or in response to pest outbreaks like desert locusts. In our region, there's such a vital and direct connection between livelihoods and the natural resource base, not just land and water, but fish stocks and forests. Uh, WFP understands that. We've, we've had to, and any national or international policy must take that into account. Livelihoods are a security issue for us. The environment is a security issue. Uh, they may start out as human security issues, but uh, as our colleagues from CIPRI have pointed out, they can quickly become harder security issues. Uh, thank you. And uh, we will now go to round two of our lightning round. Uh, and again, we'll start with Richard. What initiatives has your own organization undertaken to improve policy coherence 
And how do you see it potentially contributing to cl conflict-sensitive climate policies? Yeah, thanks. The, the, the Stockholm Environment Institute is a research organization that looks to bridge uh, science policy and, and practice on environment, climate, and development issues. Many of our projects now look at policy coherence. I can uh, give two examples. Uh, our work on, on SDG, uh, Sustainable Development Goals, Synergies and Interactions, working with countries to prioritize SDGs and to, uh, to identify the most effective partnerships and collaborations to achieve them. And also we've been part of the uh, Stockholm Climate Security Hub um, led by, by CIPRI that was already mentioned, uh, where we've also been looking at opportunities uh, to, um, to, to, to develop uh, approaches to ensure uh, security or to transboundary climate risks. And I should say, because CIPRI has been mentioned twice, I feel obliged to, to let people know if they are not aware, CIPRI is the think tank, the Stockholm International Peace Research uh, Institute. Uh, Frank Place, same question to you. Uh, can you describe some of the initiatives of your own organization? Okay, in my program, we have many initiatives that are relevant, but I'll highlight two of them. First is that we've invested considerable resources in foresight modeling, which provides glimpses into what future production incomes, consumption, and environmental outcomes might look like given predictions of climate change, demographic, and other drivers. The researchers also assess how well alternative technology and policy options are likely to perform under these predictions. So that's one body of work. The second, and our host Rob Voss and his colleagues have undertaken analyses of how agricultural support policies and programs, for example, input subsidy programs, food trade restrictions, have impacted on greenhouse gas emissions and how different ways of repurposing them could shift greenhouse gas emissions. Thank you. Uh, and Tobias, over to you. Thank you. Well, yeah, we also, um, in the context of the Planetary Security Initiative at the PSI that we host at the Klingendal Institute, um, and with our work in southern Iraq, uh, for example, we try to involve as many actors as possible and as, uh, yeah, also all kinds of actors that are one way or the other affected. So on the other hand, uh, it's the people that are affected by climate change. And on the other hand, it's also those people that are involved in policy response and policy making. So bringing these different actors together, and sometimes these are actors that don't necessarily talk to each other um, every day, um, bringing them together over the potential climate change risks, um, opportunities, and also responses, um, that is already per se a conflict sensitivity component, um, as we learned. And uh, yeah, because these actors in their daily lives might already be in a conflict over natural resources, over basic supply services, uh, etc. Uh, thank you. And Sibi, can you describe what initiatives the World Food Program has undertaken to improve policy coherence, uh, particularly vis-a-vis conflict-sensitive climate policies? Absolutely. Um, we've been very focused on on addressing the impact of, of climate change on the most vulnerable. So those with the least access to adaptive capacity or adaptive resources, which we include, you know, information forecasting new technologies. We feel that they must be supported to manage uh, this climate risk, which, which they did not, of course, create. And if we're talking, for example, about smallholder farmers or pastoralists, they need to be supported to manage this climate risk, whether through micro 
insurance or pooling their risks or indeed other innovations. If they're not supported in this way, these livelihoods will fail. And in the absence of sufficient safety nets, which we know are stretched thin because of COVID, uh, these people will move. And, and this is very much work at the humanitarian and development nexus. And so we put a lot of emphasis on that, but we cannot have our partners not there with us. For example, technicalities in the definition of subsidies that might prevent large lending institutions from financing innovative climate risk management uh, at scale that would have contributions uh, to reducing security. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you all for uh, humoring me with the very short questions to very very short answers to very complex questions. Uh, we will now uh, be able to dive a little deeper. Uh, and Richard, I will start with you. Uh, based on your extensive work in the field of climate policy, what are some of the main obstacles and challenges that you think exist with regards to the mainstreaming of climate adaptation and mitigation priorities into non-environmental policies more broadly? Yeah, thanks. Um, I, mainstreaming seems to make common sense, right? As you said, no, or as Rob said, nobody wants to be seen as incoherent. And the benefit of mainstreaming would be to ensure the long-term sustainability of investments and also to reduce the sensitivity of development outcomes to both today's climate and, and to climate change. Uh, so I think the question is no longer why do we main, why do we need mainstreaming, but also how do we actually achieve that? And some research that, that we did uh, several years ago, we identified a number of different approaches to mainstreaming. There's a, a more of a procedural approach um, where you're looking at opportunities for mainstreaming through tools like strategic environmental uh, assessment, environmental impact assessment, green budgeting, and, and so on. There is an organizational approach where we're looking at uh, changes to the organizational structure and context, um, like staff training, amendment of responsibilities and mandates, and, and so on within an organization to ensure that other priorities are considered. There's a more normative approach where high-level commitment to the issue is, is integrated and maybe formalized and elaborated in, in strategies and policy frameworks uh, uh, with additional resources. Uh, and, and there is a, a reframing approach where a number of issues that are relevant are, are sort of packaged uh, with a new label, like, uh, for example, integrated coastal zone management or nature-based solutions. Um, where the right frame is, is often a, a matter of, of, of debate. And there are, there are a number of, of sort of paradoxes that make implementing mainstreaming approaches more difficult. One is that adaptation, looking specifically at adaptation, uh, if it's to be sort of internalized across different sectors, and decentralized in terms of ownership, it can lead to decreasing visibility and, and targets and measures that, um, that, that are taken may no longer be seen as, as adaptation. So the issue is sort of mainstreamed off the agenda, if you like. Uh, at, at the same time, you know, the, the original rationale for introducing mainstreaming requirements is that the, you know, it, it has to be visible, it needs to be raised on the agenda, it deserves specific attention. So that, that, that's one of the paradoxes. The second paradox is one of shifting priorities, where, where sexual priorities may shift towards the issue that's subject to mainstreaming, whether that's adaptation, 
or, or something else. And it results in seeing mainstreaming primarily as sort of a funding choice or a budgeting choice, and much less as a planning or project or program design choice. And that, that, that's an issue of, say, high politics versus uh, versus low politics, uh, funding versus versus implementation. Great. Well, well, thank you. Uh, and Frank, uh, I will turn to you now. Uh, in the context that the Policies, Institutions, and Markets CJIR Research Program has frequently worked in, what policy realms have emerged as being particularly important for the intersection of climate adaptation and mitigation, peace, and security? Yeah, I, in addition to those topics I mentioned before, I'd like to raise three additional ones here. First, we have done quite a bit of research on the characteristics, causes, and consequences of migration, focusing mainly on voluntary migration, although some of our studies are related to climate and other shocks. Um, as you might imagine, the impacts of voluntary migration are quite different than those related to involuntary migration. Um, under voluntary migration, it is often uh, we find that there's a lot of positive outcomes. You know, people are migrating for higher incomes, for example, sending remittances back often. But it's the mo mostly the, the educated individuals who are more likely to migrate from their rural home areas. This may then hinder the ability of these sending rural areas to diversify into other important livelihoods. So thus, thus uh, raising education levels in rural areas should continue to be a priority of governments as it, as it, as it is. Um, second, uh, we've done a lot of work on social protection programs uh, focusing on rural households. <coughs> social protection programs are growing in many developing countries. Uh, we're, we're, we're squeezed by COVID, as pointed out by, by CV. Uh, but targeting and transfer mechanisms are improving, and there's many positive benefits from these programs. Um, since many recipients are located in the marginalized areas of countries, these programs could be adapted to include climate triggers to respond quickly to shocks. So that's an area of that for future work um, of, of integrating those. And lastly, I'll mention our research on natural resource tenure and governance. We have conducted research to develop inclusive approaches to managing shared landscapes with applications in managing rangelands, forests, water resources, among others. And we've also identified options to strengthen tenure security amongst smallholder farmers and especially the youth and the women. So, Thank you. Uh, and Sibi, I'm going to come to you next. Uh, why is it important to have a coherent approach to climate adaptation, mitigation, and food security related policies? And can you perhaps explain some of the ways that incoherent and inconsistent climate policies can undermine the food and nutritional security of vulnerable communities? Hmm. Okay, Mark, I'm going to give that to you in a, in a two-part answer. If the first one is more looking at things with, with a fragility lens, uh, provisions for humanitarian assistance or crisis responses must take into account the impact of this displacement on the environment as well. So households might need food transfers or cash transfers, but they will also need ways to cook that food. Oftentimes, populations are moved in a new country to very degraded lands, making this even more urgent. Um, if they have to travel further and further to, to access increasingly scarce fuel wood, there's danger uh, at a 
personal level and also increase conflict with, with host communities. In protracted crises, which are the norm in this region, you can have families displaced for generations. I was recently at a, at a refugee settlement uh, in Uganda where the average length of stay was, was 17 years. So here, access to land, financial support for livelihoods, these are oftentimes not covered in, in refugee um, in case regimens, but they need to be considered. If I move now to the development lens, different priorities inform different national and international policies. A desire for reduction in the dependence of, say, fossil fuels or a reduction of carbon emissions can rank differently as a priority on national agendas. If a government's trying to accelerate exports, farmers or livestock exports, its emphasis on green technologies may be different. So we want to avoid a situation where there's a zero-sum game between what's seen as green or, or uh, climate-friendly uh, and, and development and the growth aspirations of the governments in this region. We're watching closely the discussions that are happening in the U.S. right now on these very issues. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Uh, and Tobias, what kind of strategic partnerships between governments, international and regional organizations, non-governmental organizations, and the private sector are needed to help improve climate security policy coherence? And how might different biophysical and socioeconomic contexts affect the makeup of these partnerships? Well, again, big, big question. Um, it, of course, we need to highlight that it always depends, of course, A, on the regional local context and B, on the specific climate security challenge that we discussed. So electricity and water shortages uh, in rural areas, for instance, require different approaches than uh, floods, thunderstorms or heat waves in cities. That can involve uh, the state, that can involve NGOs, the private sector. It's context specific. Important is that these alliances and partnerships are built around the topics, around the challenges, and at the same time, across sectors, political parties, across conflict lines, all kinds of social economic groups, ethnicities, etc. To come to the second part of the question, the biophysical and socioeconomic uh, context, well, it actually determines the potential action, the role of the actors and the type of the partnerships. So let me give you a, quickly an example. When we talk about water scarcity and water security, we hardly discuss the Arabian Peninsula, with the exception of Yemen. But why is that the case? It's the, the most water scarce region in the world. Well, we don't discuss Saudi Arabia, Qatar, or UAE because uh, simply these states have the financial means to address water scarcity and security in a specific uh, case with large-scale desalination. So in this case, um, of course, the private sector, technology development, and uh, state financing are key drivers um, behind that successful policy response. While in other cases, for example, we have enough water resources available, but they cannot be utilized due to limited financial resources or the lack of technology, such as in the DRC. In such contexts, context, then we talk about water scarcity and water security and how climate change that further accelerates. Uh, thank you. Uh, we're going to go back now to Richard Klein. Uh, what tools should the research community develop for policy and decision makers to improve coherence? And where should priorities uh, for generating evidence lie? Thanks. I, I see a need for two types of screening tools. The first one already exists by and large, and that is climate risk screening. But the climate risk screening 
for adaptation often looks only at what happens within a country and how can we address these risks within the country. Um, I, I want to highlight here the importance of cross-border or transboundary climate risks, the fact that what happens in one part of the world may have uh, a detrimental effect to other parts of the world. To give one, one example, um, in, in 2008-2009, the drought in, in parts of Asia, including India, led to a reduction of, of exports, um, increase of the price of rice on the world market, um, tripling of the price of rice on the market in Senegal, and, and food riots uh, in the streets of Dakar. Um, so the vulnerability and the conflict that we saw in Senegal had nothing to do with the climate change that was happening there. And risk screening efforts in Senegal would have missed the risk that was actually uh, caused by, by a climate event in, in Asia. So that we, we, need to, we need to broaden risk screening tools to include transboundary climate risk. The second is we also need screening tools to identify the effect of actions taken to uh, reduce these risks. Because often these actions don't actually reduce risk, but they redistribute risk. Um, they might reduce risk in one place, but they might, people in other, they might make people in other places worse off. Um, we need to identify what are the justice and equity effects of, of these actions. And, and this is also some ongoing work that we are doing, looking at the, the issue of just resilience. I could say more about that later if you want. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, and now I'll move to Frank. Uh, in your work on natural resource tenure and property rights in agricultural landscapes, can you think of any examples of where an integrated policy response across multiple dimensions simultaneously could serve to reduce the risk of tensions or conflict? Sure. Um, in many rural settings, uh, natural resources such as water, feed, food, medicinals, firewood are found in forests, woodlands, and other habitats that are, are off uh, agricultural lands. And these are very important for the well-being of the poor. Many studies have shown how their importance increases when there are droughts or other climate shocks. Therefore, it stands that governance and rights to these resources are critical to the likelihood of conflict as well. Our research involving many CG centers working in diverse landscapes finds that building inclusivity into landscape governance institutions or through other collective action mechanisms have many positive attributes beyond the, the goal of fairness. For example, these also build trust and they build technical competencies in managing resources that help foster better ad adaptation to climate change. Um, while not such a core component of all, of all of our research, uh, I think that conflict mitigation could be more widely integrated into our research designs in the future. Then coming to the look at, the, at uh, tenure on farmland itself, a critical issue is related to enhancing access to land by the youth, especially if we look at uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Research shows that where traditional inheritance systems are insufficient to provide land to all of those youth who would like to have some, because you know, there's land shortages, there's very densely populated areas, uh, we find that land rental markets are a useful mechanism, which is unlike land sales markets, which are, tend to be out of the reach of the, of the youth who, have to, who don't have capital to invest. But short-term short rentals, which are prevalent, are not good for encouraging longer-term climate-smart agriculture practices. So the pr promotion of longer-term land rentals could be an approach to promote peace as well as climate change adaptation and mitigation. Uh, thank you. Uh, and 
Sibby, uh, we are speaking in the midst of Nobel Prize season. And of mm-hmm. course, your organization, the World Food Program, won the Nobel Peace Prize last year. And since then, the WFP has increasingly been working on mitigating that climate security nexus, particularly through its regional presence. Uh, For instance, the WFP Regional Bureau for Eastern Africa is looking to create a learning facility for institutions contributing to the enhancement of climate risk management, change adaptation data, and program integration with other WFP activities. How do you think this initiative could contribute to the coherence of national and regional policies for a climate-resilient peace? Thank you, Mark. I'm happy to answer that question. And of course, winning the Nobel Peace Prize was was such a huge honor for WFP. But more than that, it was a recognition of something we have felt and, and known for for some time, but have struggled to to quantify, which is, of course, the, the contribution of, of well-designed food assistance programs to peace outcomes. And food assistance in the widest sense of the word, so not just the transfers of food or cash, but market development activities, logistics interventions like bridges and roads between previously quite isolated communities, cash transfers at scale, almost $400 million of cash transfers over the past year and a half in some of these protracted crises. So we know there are direct impacts on social cohesion and the community integration that my colleague was just speaking about. So through this learning facility, our aspiration is to understand better how we can mitigate collective security risks that are linked to food system issues, which of course, environmental ones are. How can we better leverage our presence, partnerships, and operations in ways that contribute to these peace outcomes. And also, we have access to pretty incredible data about climate trends, about their impacts now, but also in the future, about vulnerabilities and how they change over time. Already, we're working with these regional entities such as EGAD, the EAC, and the AU. These bodies play such a key role in conflict prevention and resolution, we feel strongly that they need to be equipped with access to the latest science, the latest knowledge, the latest thinking information about how to support countries to better manage their their climate risk. So that's the thinking behind the facility. Thank you. And Tobias, uh, in the context of Klingendahl's recent work on climate security practices, how can we best streamline climate security practices across different policy domains and sectors? Well, an excellent question. Uh, thanks. Uh, with the report that we published earlier this year, there was basically one key lesson learned, uh, which was that there are just a few climate security practices. They usually either come from the security side, from security projects that put a climate climate security label on it, um, recognizing that uh, climate change does play a role um, here, or they come from the climate change uh, perspective side, uh, taking security-related consequences um, into consideration. But there are hardly projects that explicitly address climate security as a term, as a concept, as an approach, and or as, also as a way of framing and thinking, by the way. So how to streamline that? I think it's important that we start to make more use of the opportunities that climate security offers rather than still debating the different definitions, interlinkages, causalities, um, etc. These discussions still get a lot of space and room um, in the various discourses and debates. debates. Climate security is, by definition, an integrated approach. It allows to integrate climate and security, different branches for action, land and water use, for instance. It could be seen as 
a tool to contribute to peace, stability, conflict prevention, and peace building. As it is still some kind of a still fuzzy and open concept, it is, climate security is quite flexible, can be flexibly adjusted to the concrete local context, as uh, already uh, outlined above. Um, while new policies need to be developed, it is also worth, by the way, to look into de facto climate security practices of the past. Afforestation projects or uh, decentralized electrification projects, some of them run for 10, 20, 30 years, might not be labeled climate security practices today, but they are actually already at the very core of what we are discussing here. So we can learn from these practices from the past and uh, from the ground. Thank you. Uh, and I have a final round of questions for our panelists. But before I, I get to that, just a reminder, if you would like to pose a question to our panelists, please simply leave your comment as your question as a comment in the comment field uh, wherever you're watching this live stream. Uh, and now to a final question for each of you. Uh, what are the top two messages you would emphasize with regard to ensuring a coherent and conflict-sensitive approach to the design and implementation of climate adaptation and policy mitigation policies, particularly in the context of the upcoming COP26, which kicks off in just a couple of weeks from when we are speaking today. Uh, so, Richard, I will start with you. Thank you. Yeah, my, my first message uh, to to the COP, there will be in, in Glasgow, there'll be a lot of, lot of discussion about the global goal on adaptation, which is in the Paris Agreement uh, and which needs to be made operational in order to be able to track progress towards achieving that global goal. Uh, in the same article in the Paris Agreement that introduces the global goal on adaptation, it also says that adaptation is a global challenge. And I think that is often overlooked. The fact that adaptation is a global challenge doesn't just mean that adaptation is important for every single country in the world. It means that we're all connected, we're all in this together. And as I just mentioned with the example of, of India and, and Senegal, uh, what happens in one part of the world might have an effect on another part of the world. And the UNFCCC and the discussions at COP26 are not taking that into account. Adaptation is very much a domestic, uh, country-driven process uh, where the impacts that need to be adapted to are those that happen within the country. And that would be overlooking an important part of the risk. The second message, and that's related to that, is that as we pursue resilience, and there's, of course, a lot of discussion about resilience and how important it is, is not just that we need to make people and communities more resilient, but it's how we produce that resilience that matters. And the European Commission in its recent uh, adaptation strategy has introduced the notion of just resilience as sort of the adaptation equivalent of just transitions, where there is... Uh, an understanding that action can produce winners and losers. And it's important that those that, uh, that stand to, uh, to lose from any, any options are, are either compensated or that the, the policies are, um, uh, are designed in such a way that uh, that resilience is produced in a just way. I can just give, if you allow me, one, give one example um, sure, that's, sure. that I think illustrates this concept quite, quite nicely. And we all know that coffee production is, uh, is, is vulnerable to climate change. Um, 
if it gets warmer, a country like Brazil, which is an important coffee coffee producer, uh, might well be be hit, and the quality of coffee or the production of coffee may be affected. For coffee importers in Europe, it'll be very easy to uh, either cancel contracts or just to shift their their import of coffee to another to another place. That's adaptation for them, and it may be very sort of you know, effective. On the other hand, those at the very beginning of the supply chain, the coffee farmers. They will not just be hit by climate change. They'll be hit by the actions taken by the coffee importers in Europe as well. And that would be an example of of, of unjust resilience, if you like. Uh, thank you. Uh, and, and Frank, uh, over to you. Yeah, just building on uh, Richard's comment, l- last point about building resilience really requires you to get to the community level. I think one thing that I mentioned before on landscape approaches, I think is very important. So landscape approaches that bring together stakeholders and provides each of them voice and agency over management of these resources are important for increasing equity, climate change adaptation and mitigation, sustainable management, trust and peace. I think that's a, it's a vital pillar in our approach, whether we start um, at national level uh, or start at local level, but eventually we have to get to these local levels and d- design good institutions. The second one is uh, that, uh, you know, one finding that's consistent in a lot of our research, regardless of what uh, sector and, and so forth, is that the context matters a lot when designing appropriate policy responses, whether related to tenure, as I mentioned, or other areas. You can think about what might work in a peri-urban area, well-connected to markets versus a, rem- versus a remote area, for example. So thus, uh, good diagnostics of uh, best bet policies and investments in a given situation is a must for all um, you know, future investments and policy considerations. Thank you. Uh, and Sibi, uh, over to you, uh, your top two messages in this regard. Yep. My top two messages. Well, I would say from our vantage point, we're still really looking at at issues of of climate justice and and climate debt. And for us, that now means equal access to adaptive resources and capacities, um, prioritization of actions that accelerate adaptation in low-income contexts, which includes conflict risk management, um, innovations, but also the financing for that. Um, Richard said adaptation may be a very local thing, but the accountability for it is, is a shared one, a global. And I think that was also demonstrated in, in the notion of just resilience, where actions that are good for one country or one community are actually not good for the other. Which leads me to my second message for the COP, the COP team, which is the context specificity of the pathways to climate resilience. The speaker just before me mentioned it as well. Um, We cannot have a situation where there is a perceived conflict or an actual conflict between development priorities, livelihood priorities. We have a huge youth population. They want access to land, but also to jobs and, and, the creation of those should not come into conflict with efforts to, to go green and leapfrog to cleaner technologies. Thank you. Thank you. And Tobias, before we uh, go to you, just one last reminder, uh, we are going to take questions from the audience in a moment. Please get your questions in now. And Tobias, your uh, two messages for those at COP26. Yeah, thanks. Well, I'd, basically, the first one is more a reminder that climate security and climate change policies are not an academic or political exercise, but a necessity to actually address climate change and its consequences. So it is time for action. That is not new, uh, but we need more action. At the same time, we also still have to admit that we are still in a learning process. We need to be open to learn from different projects, from different places, different regions, from different organizations, and also maybe from different type of actors. And uh, the second uh, 
The second uh, recommendation or key message is that basically everyone can implement climate security policies and projects. Everyone can contribute to that. Um, there are actors in development, diplomacy and defense, uh, and also in other sectors that should work more intensively together on building climate and climate, uh, climate change policies and climate security. There are still some cleavages, a little bit of hesitancy, climate change people, the security world, etc. But we need to work together. We shouldn't think too much about the limits and the limitations that we see in our own areas and sectors, but rather take the opportunities, go out and cooperate with others that have similar ideas, similar plans and similar agendas. Uh, thank you. So we are going to now turn to questions from the audience. We have some questions coming in. Uh, the first one is to Sibi. What's the best way to tell government agencies about the role of climate as a threat multiplier? Thank you for that for that uh, question. In fact, we like to show governments evidence of the money they could have saved had they uh, responded in an anticipatory way. We like to look, uh, for example, where, where I'm sitting now, we're in our second year of drought in several countries of the region, quite a severe drought, and looking at another year of drought uh, next year, unfortunately. So we've missed the window for anticipatory approaches, but we can now go to governments and say, had you spent this money in this way, it would have saved you some very uh, expensive responses down the line. So it's more with evidence and showing cost savings. Most uh, governments are aware of the threat that climate is bringing to, to them, but they're looking for ways to respond out of very constrained budgets. So we try to show cost savings and work at the community level. And just to be clear, you are in Kenya at the moment. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I'm sitting in Nairobi. Our regional bureau is in Nairobi. Of course, we covered of course. 10, 10 countries in this region. Just wanted to make sure that listeners out there knew that. They, they yes. can't see the, the beautiful map behind you and this <laughs> live stream. Um, yeah. Frank, uh, pardon me, uh, Richard, a uh, question to you from the audience. What needs to be done so national and subnational policymakers actually have the capacity to put forward more climate security sensitive adaptation policies? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, national adaptation plans and regional adaptation plans aren't just about implementing particular technologies, for example. They're also about you know, strengthening institutions, building the capacity of all actors involved to have better access to data, to better interpret the data and understand the risks across sectors. Um, I think that that capacity strengthening element of of adaptation is is sometimes overlooked, as it is so important. It is the absolute foundation of, for any adaptation activities to be successful. Um, to a large extent, that is um, that can be built in to to adaptation funded adaptation projects through the adaptation fund or the green climate fund or, or bilateral activities. Um, but, but there are certainly also opportunities within countries uh, to um, you know, create that, that, that sort of the, the foundation for policy coherence and effective adaptation um, uh, and also link it to issues such as uh, humanitarian assistance um, and, and other policy fields. Uh, thank you. And the next question I have from the audience is, from, is to Frank. You've spoken about empowering young people. Certain demographic groups, particularly young men, are commonly cited as being susceptible to being drawn into and engaging con in conflict. 
how can climate smart agricultural policies be specifically tailored to this dynamic? Um, very good question. Um, so, uh, yes, for, so the youth comes, you know, often the youth have come in with, a, a, um, you know, an, a higher education than their, their predecessors. They're looking for, um, you know, interesting ways um, in which they can apply that, whether it's on farm or off farm. There's quite a, there's quite a few programs that are designed to help, um, you know, uh, raise uh, capacity and help support the development of youth on agripreneurs or entrepreneurs. So they could be on farm or, or associated with farming practices in rural areas, for example, providing advisory services. We've done some quite a bit of research to see how we can involve the youth in uh, providing advisory services because they're quite adept at uh, you know, more than, uh, again, their predecessors on using digital tools. And there's a lot of information out there that can be accessed digitally, but it has to be translated to, to local communities. So there's some so promising developments there. Also to get into different kinds of uh, uh, business, other kinds of businesses uh, to um, help supply agriculture. So it does require though that they, they need some access to credit or capital because that's one thing that you don't have. They have the education, but they don't often have the, the capital and credit. So, uh, uh, you know, enabling some kinds of uh, uh, projects to help to, to promote them. Brazil has a, has a good program. Um, I forget the, actually the name of it though, to help, uh, uh, to give some capital to youth to help start them off on some of these uh, enterprises. And some of that's been tested in African countries as well. Uh, thank you. And the next question uh, could be for everyone. Uh, let's though kick off with Tobias. Uh, how can those attending COP26 make sure that policies coming out of the conference don't end up undermining security or increasing the risk of conflict? Well, as I uh, said before, it's uh, context specific, and it needs to be, uh, yeah, it needs to be looked at in the in, in, the, in the specific cases. Um, in general, the first uh, the actors implementing these policies should always be on alert when it comes to security, when it comes to climate, when it comes to uh, yeah, competing competing goals. Um, unfortunately, I say there is no guarantee that uh, unintended consequences or side effects might pop up one or two years later. But as a recommendation that I would give um, all actors involved, we all need to do our best in order to avoid these kind of uh, unintended consequences as good as it gets. And again, local knowledge involving the local population, involving those that had been working uh, in the specific context for 10, 20, 30 years uh, might be useful and helpful to avoid uh, such a negative outcome. Hmm. Uh, who else would like to take a stab at that? Uh, Richard, I see you nodding your head. Yeah, no, I think, I think this is a really important issue. I mean, climate change has been often framed as an environmental issue and, and the fact that we're now dis discussing it here shows it's it's more than that right it's, it's also a security issue uh, but it, it cuts across basically everything the people negotiating uh, in in glasgow though they, they are often those who come from an environment ministry uh, or from a, with an environmental background sure. uh, what, what's really important is that they when they when they come home um they they talk to their counterparts in, for example, the trade ministry. Uh, as as to be said, you know, we we often see that there are policies 
in conflict and that one policy might undermine the effect of another policy. Um, this is exactly what policy coherence is about. And if you if you leave climate change into that environmental uh, sort of context, then there is a big risk that we are not going to see the effect of, of Glasgow um, that's, that we all hope for. And uh, Sibby, I, I heard you utter true <laughs> at uh, at Richard's remark. What 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 resonated with you? Goodness, so much resonated. What was I specifically uh, speaking about? Oh no, I remember. I remember. It was that uh, oftentimes the climate change work is done by environmentalists, or it's led by environmentalists. And and I would add to that if we just look at ministries, oftentimes the Ministry of Environment, at least in my region, is is not the best funded and not the most influential. And I suspect that that it's certainly true in in my own organization organization to be very honest. So we have to widen this notion that climate change and, and the responses to it are just an environmental issue. As we've been so clear about, it's intersectoral and has different impacts, certainly on different parts of the food system. We need to get it out of the uh, just the environment uh, box. Over. Thank you. Uh, and uh, Frank, any, any uh, comments to this end? Well, I would only say that just to, to chip in is that I guess, uh, you know, in terms of tackling these longer term uh, problems, it's always best that we under get a better sense of the risks of some of these things emerging. So, uh, you know, I think although we can never predict with certainty where conflicts are going to break out and when, uh, I think we do have now growing uh, uh, ability to look at risk factors and, and understand where these um these locations are likely to, to to emerge in the future, given our understanding of climate change and so forth. And I think that'll be helpful for 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 discussions on on where to direct more attention to. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, we have a question from Una Murray, uh, who asks, "How do we deal with the need for long-term planning for climate security with short-term government tenure in power and their need to be elected?" Uh, Tobias, uh, you, you are nodding your head vigorously at these competing time horizons. Yeah, well, that's the uh, that's uh, a very very important uh, question and a very um, a very big hurdle uh, that we see all around the globe. Um, I think maybe there's a, a glimpse of hope at least. Uh, I would say that over the last three, four, five, six years, there's at least a growing perception that climate change, climate change impact, consequences of climate change in the middle run and the long run are maybe, you know, an, an issue that we need to tackle better sooner than later. And that also related costs, financial costs, um, other costs, political costs um, need to be, let's say, uh, need to be accepted to a certain extent. And that, let's say, yeah, uh, no matter who is in charge at a specific point in time or in government or elected or the next to be elected, that that is a broader agenda um, that uh, we all, whatever that means in a specific context, uh, need to work on. Um, otherwise, we might uh, simply fail. Thank you. And, and Sibi, I have to imagine you are confronted with this challenge and your work yes. with governments in the region pretty often. Mm -hmm, how, mm -hmm. how do you manage that challenge? 
and it's 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 even just the short time frame the one year funding most uh, funding for humanitarian assistance has a one year time frame and and there's not much that you can do in a year one thing i would say is that communities are very aware of the issue of climate change and and they're looking for answers from their local governments and and if you can show some solutions some short term solutions that will provide coverage in the short term you can buy yourself the time for for longer term investments to bear fruit if i go back to the example of the window for anticipatory action for any 2022 drought is still there. But in the meantime, we can do short-term responses, support short-term responses that support livelihoods, that protect the environment. So we all have to get used to doing two things at the same time. And this is very difficult for the UN, certainly, who are quite siloed. And I think in governments as well, humanitarian development, now nexus, is it nexus with the peace and so on? We have to get used to doing things alongside one another. I think the food system uh, debate and discussion also opens that up, the need for more integration, including of timeframes around collective outcomes, including security outcomes or environmental. They've all become much more intersectoral and collective. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Uh, so in about one minute, I am going to turn the moderating back over to Rob. Uh, I will give, uh, however, Richard and Frank just about 30 seconds for your concluding thoughts before I do so. Uh, over to you, Richard. Yeah, thanks. You know, the predictability of climate policy is incredibly important. Just today, several German companies uh, called for the future government uh, for, for stronger climate action, simply because they'd rather uh, have, have clarity about what climate policy is going to be now than be confronted with much stronger demands later. And let's, let's all fool ourselves. The most fickle country when it comes to climate policy is the United States, which is in and out of the Paris Agreement. Um, I, I think I think clearly we need to look at, at not only what happens within countries but globally with these uh, uh, with, with with the longer and shorter time horizons that we're facing. Thank you, and Frank, uh, final thought for you. Yeah, I, I being a, in, a, in the typical American here, I, I agree with what Richard said, and I think what 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 I, what's heartening in the U.S. is despite the ups and downs of the the, the government policies, I think there has been kind of a a monotonic improvement in how businesses are confronting climate change and, and um, mitigation. And I think that's quite important. There's a number of initiatives that are taken. Uh, many more are trying to get involved in, in uh, you know, uh, getting, you know, to zero emissions targets and so forth. And I think that's really where the action is going to happen in places like the U.S. It's through the private sector, not the government so much. Yeah. Well, a big thank you to all of our panelists and to all of you who are following the live stream. Today's conversation was recorded as a live taping of the Global Dispatches podcast. To access the Global Dispatches podcast, simply search for it wherever you listen to your podcasts. And now over to you, Rob. Thank you, Mark. Uh, well, this was a very rich discussion. Uh, we've heard great examples of the need for policy coherence, as well as initiatives taken by the various uh, organizations represented on the panel uh, to, to forge uh, policy coherence uh, across uh, the various domains that are important to climate change, security, and development. Um, we've also heard that in practice, it's not uh, so easy to, um, to forge um, policy coherence, even though everybody seems to agree that it, it is important. So it's not always happening, and it is challenging in the climate, particularly in the climate security area. 
but um, the balance also makes clear is that um, um, there's a lot to be gained. Uh, climate change-related policies uh, often lack coherence with other fields, uh, but if you create this coherence, that there's a potential uh, to um, reduce um, uh, the factors that uh, now are undermining human security and peace. Conversely, uh, coherent policy frameworks of climate action uh, also encourage the cooperation with potential com uh, uh, of contributing at the same time to st sustainable peace security by targeting all factors that determine vulnerability to the impacts of climate change. So my takeaways from the discussion are five. Uh, first, policy coherence is not a universal recipe. We need to tailor solutions to the problems and to the context in particular, and make sure we bring in the right stakeholders to the table. Context matters a lot and we need good diagnostics. Second, um, we need to identify trade-offs and distributional facts of actions uh, across the various domains that we try to bring together. And failing to do so may, uh, may things uh, fail. We need just transitions, uh, that's part of the distributional effects. And that means inclusive design of policies and uh, programs. But this is at the same time also a big challenge given very often the big stakes and uh, conflicting interests that are involved. But we have to face up to this, to, to the, this challenge uh, because otherwise it will be impossible to achieve common solutions and impossible to prevent uh, conflict and come to uh, common solutions. The third lesson is um, we need to not just to look at uh, specific local and national context, but take on board uh, international cross-border spillovers from climate risk and other interventions. Um, so that means we not just need national policy coherence, but international policy coherence. And hence the importance of international agreements, the, the Paris agreements, but also the, the free uh, Rio agreements, as they're sometimes called uh, for uh, UNFCCC was born out of it, the Convention on Biodiversity and the uh, Convention on uh, Preventing uh, Decertification. The fourth lesson is that learning is important. Uh, we, uh, see, we've heard about information systems, uh, learning facilities, knowledge hubs, but also about the importance of capacity development and education. Um, given the threat of climate change and the urgency uh, for action, um, these aspects are particularly important because um, we may need to experiment as we either may not know uh, all the solutions, we may not have pieced them well together. So we need to work together, learn from each other and learn by doing. And fifth, the fifth takeaway is, uh, and I thought we had overcome that already, but uh, I heard uh, it's not that year. We need to stop seeing climate change as an environmental issue, uh, a difference from other uh, topics and challenges. And I had hoped that um, that was uh, behind us. Um, if, if I recall, when I was Secretary of the United Nations Committee on Development Policy in 2005, I tried to get um, that committee um, uh, present a report on climate change and development to the um, Economic and Social Council of the United Nations. And uh, it took me a very hard time 
to get it on that agenda simply because everyone said, well, that's an issue for UNFCCC and not for the social and economic, uh, or the economic and social council of, uh, of the UN. And that's even after the UN Security Council had already addressed climate change. So um, uh, these things may have to be hammered in uh, continuously. Uh, the critical thing is that we need to look across policy domains. Climate change, security are not separate issues. They have to come together. Uh, also with development issues, uh, they have to come together. If not, uh, we may not find the right solutions to the challenges that we're facing. With that, uh, thank you all. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to CGIAR for partnering with the podcast around this series. We have a few episodes left in this series. Please visit climatesecurity.cgiar.org to participate in a future live taping of the podcast. We'll see you then. Bye.